point is that that I would make is that it's much harder for somebody born poor who may have to work, drop out of school and work early on, or who may have, you know, be born into a really poor area and get introduced to drugs early on. Like it becomes exponentially harder as a poor person to make those right decisions than a rich person. And I think if the contention is correct, going back to the earlier point, that anybody can make it anywhere at equal, like it's equally easy to make it anywhere as any person born to any part of society, then we wouldn't see sickness at the ends. We would like the data would be equal. People will be moving classes equally based on only their talent or their choices or whatever. So it doesn't seem to be the case that that's, that's true. Hello, and welcome to The Joe Mobley Show. I'm your host, Joe Mobley, and you're listening to the only place in cyberspace where we talk about being conservative. We hit on current events, the politically correct cancel culture, and problems with civil discourse. But most importantly, we discuss what you can do to come out of the conservative closet. The Joe Mobley Show is a new and exciting podcast that airs weekly on Monday mornings. We have a range of controversial topics on deck. Even so, it's important that we hear from you what matters most. Be sure to send questions, comments, and things you'd like to hear discussed to ask at thejoemobleyshow.com. That's ask at thejoemobleyshow.com. To make sure you stay informed on the latest content, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great podcasts. Welcome back to The Joe Mobley Show. I'm your host, Joe Mobley, and today we're going to have a really awesome interview uh, with Nick. Um, Nick is a college student, and we actually crossed paths on another podcast where we spoke on election fraud, and that podcast is called The Heal Our Division Podcast, um, which is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Great conversation, great episode. Uh, Just get on that podcast and search for uh, election fraud. Look through the episodes for election fraud. It's one of the recent ones. Um, and you can hear our our first conversation there. Um, I had an enjoyable conversation. Nick gave me a lot of things um, to think about. He articulates issues very well. Um, and though we disagree about much, it's so enjoyable to get to speak to someone who doesn't yell and scream and actually says, well, this is why I think this. And um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Nick, thanks so much for agreeing for an interview. Yeah, thanks for having me on. How are you today, sir? Um, I'm good. I am starting school soon. Um, so that's like a kind of a thing coming up for me, but I have like a week left of break, so I'm just enjoying that. Um, yeah, what about you? I am not starting school, thankfully. <laughs> um, but man, enjoy the break. Even when people are, I think people are mischaracterizing. Um, virtual learning, it, it can still be uh, overwhelming with uh, academic loads. Yeah. Um, so hopefully college is challenging still. Yeah, I I think even like online is almost harder because there's no accountability. There's less accountability, I think, for your work and stuff. So for me, at least it's been harder to focus and keep everything like on time and all that. So uh, hopefully we're back soon. Yeah, I tell people I'm not a big proponent of online learning. I took online classes um, and I actually did my master's degree online. Uh, But the good thing about online education is it definitely, kind of like you described, it definitely pushes personal responsibility, which is a very good life skill um, because there are the deadlines and there are multiple projects. So um, if you study online, you can definitely be a manager or project manager somewhere. Um, 
yeah, so I guess that's the silver lining. Yeah, that's good to hear. Ah, oh, I wish I could have found that water. All <laughs> right, so uh, we got a ton of topics, as always. We're probably not going to get to all of them. Um, one of the things, you know, so so we don't have a complete repeat of last episode. Maybe we'll talk about election fraud. Maybe we won't. Um, but I'm interested, you know, we we both have an interest in philosophy. And if, if we're not going to say, like, names and theories and stuff, um, even if we're just going to speak in layman's terms, I'm interested where you think the our society, the American culture, is uh, philosophically. Are we on a good footing? Are, are people kind of irrational? I hear self-defeating arguments from people left, right, and center. Um, what do you think is going on with us philosophically, with, with the average Joe out there in any town USA? Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting question, uh, a difficult question for sure, but a good one. Um, I think that um, personally, um, I like the idea that America has this idea that there are certain individual liberties that can never be crossed, and there are certain rights that we were afforded that um, are sacred. And, and even if you can create a policy, let's say, that has some benefit, if you cross a certain person's individual liberty or rights, that policy is then unjust. I think that's a good system. I think that I, I like that more than a system that maximizes benefits and minimizes costs all the time. Um, but I think uh, modern politics and our modern landscape, um, philosophically, I think that some of that is getting lost. And I would argue on both sides. Um, obviously, as someone on the left, I think that happens more on the right. But I would argue that like, I think people need to evaluate their arguments a little bit better and look at not just um, the immediate benefit or the immediate cost, but also like how those things play into um, their philosophical worldview or the philosophical worldview of the United States. Um, and I think that the what I personally the root of the problem is, is probably like our, our education. I think our education is uh, our education system, um, our way of treating education, our cultural attitude around education is, I think, so, leaves things to be desired. And, um, you know, my parents are immigrants um, and I've seen, you know, how much at, back home they value education and um, they value like rigorous kind of knowledge. And students don't just learn like it feels less like a checklist and more like a holistic kind of way of understanding the world. And I think that drawing what you believe from your first principles and from your morals and from your ethics is a, a lot better way to go around, go about society than like immediate kind of um, cost benefit analysis. So that's kind of, sorry, that was a long winded response, but I think that's kind of uh, how I feel about um, philosophy in America today and, and our politics. Um, but yeah, I hope that was understandable. Yeah, it, it was. And, you know, I should have said when we spoke earlier, but one of the key differences in my podcast, and yeah, we'll talk facts and figures and whatnot. Um, but just like, personal stories, everyday experiences is definitely something that our listeners look forward to. Um, because while anecdotal, um, just like stereotypes are, are based on observable truths, um, you know, there's a lot of value in anecdotes. It's, it's almost like saying someone's autobiography is useless or, or books about people are useless. Um, our experience is important. So long-winded answers, welcome for sure. Okay, and, perfect. Yeah. Uh, I'm long-winded myself yeah i mean i would i if i'm allowed to ask questions of you i would i would ask what you think of the same the same question it's fun yeah you're definitely allowed to ask me questions all throughout um you know challenge my suppositions and the and this is why i wanted to have you on um because 
you know, my peer group, they're very intimidated to uh, challenge any premise that I throw out there. So I really do lean on older um, people. And I know that you're younger, but you're, um, as I said before, I think you're very bright and um, articulate. Um, Yeah, yeah. So ask away, um, what what do I think about, it's funny, I actually agree with a lot of what you said. Um, There, on both sides of every issue, there are alarmists. we see that right now people are saying a hundred percent there's going to be a civil war. Nope. Right. I, I don't believe so. One, you know, I, I'm a, a security expert. I'm not a policy expert, but my understanding of what drives war between two nations and war uh, between one society, a civil war is, is, is pretty solid. Um, and so calm down people. We're not there. Uh, things are not there right now. Um, just like in 2016, it, it was the left, but right now, um, Republicans and, and conservatives more broadly are just like losing their minds. Like the world is over. Um, all of this, these things are going to happen. Um, and I've been talking people off the ledge for days. Uh, so, but yeah, education, 100% agree. There's a lot to be uh, desired here. I, I think education is. Um, degraded a lot over the last 100, 150 years. Um, which is funny, I said to someone else today on the call, um, I think that there's some pretty objective metrics to suggest that a what they called back then the secondary school student, so we're talking like fifth through seven or eighth grade, um, a student in the early 1800s to mid 1800s in that age bracket, say a, I don't know, 12, 14 year old was definitely more intelligent than a high school grad or even a college student um, educated in America today, um, apart from our grasp of technical uh, things and, and all things STEM Um with the exception of physics, we have people, adults, we have people that are policymakers that their grasp of philosophy and physics and even history is total crap. It's not good at all. Um, yeah. And so what I hope to do is have conversations with people to just help, you know, a lot of the listeners, they're in the same boat. They, they don't know a lot of stuff and we don't have all the answers, but Uh, People are looking up things that we're saying. They're hearing how we're framing arguments, or I believe this because I think blah, blah, blah. Um, And I think that's what Dave Rubin does. I think that's what Ben Shapiro used to do. Um, And and now he's, he's a little more pointed and, and um, comical, uh, which is good because comedy sticks. People remember, you know, there are so many Ben Shapiro owns dot, dot, dot videos. Um, But I think, having open and honest conversations and explaining positions to people helps humanize us because um, everyone on the left isn't a socialist or um, immoral or a psycho and everyone on the right isn't a bigot and a racist and a Nazi. Um, Yeah. So that's why I like to have these conversations. Yeah. I think like, um, I think I would agree like the, the kind of moral absolutism of, painting everybody in a group as a specific thing or having a specific negative trait is uh, not a good way to go forward. I think that 
systems can be bad or produce bad outcomes without individual people in those systems being bad or believing bad things. So I think that like those conversations are a lot more interesting and valuable than talking about like how, you know, this group of people is X bad thing. Um, but yeah. Yeah, that's, that's funny that you mentioned that because it's like, there is a, an in-between in between absolutism and relativism and that's where reality is. Um, and so it sounds like, and I, I, I'm not meaning to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you'd probably think that uh, more conservatives are, you know, kind of absolutist. And I think that more liberals are relativist. Um, and then neither one can really work functionally uh, in a society. Yeah, I mean, I think like, I think personally, I don't believe in like any absolute moral truths, but I think that you probably have to assume some of them to be able to, you know, function in a society. So I think in that way, like, I do agree that, um, like, functionally, you are still assuming that there are some universal moral realities. But of course, like, I think that's a kind of unimportant distinction anyway, because what I think doesn't really matter um, when we're policymaking. Yeah, well, there are some policymakers who don't know. (laughs) <laughs> the truth of what you just said. <laughs> so that's yeah, funny. I, I would agree, yeah. Um, so All the right. Uh, I guess the, the specifics of a specific topic, because then I think our philosophical views will kind of come out of that naturally. Yeah, well, I think this next topic will draw out some, I don't know, but maybe draw out some, some philosophical positions. Uh, so the next thing I have up on this little note guide that I have um, is systemic racism, institutional racism. Um, so I'll just leave it completely open-ended. What, what are your thoughts about that? What are your thoughts about what people call race relations in the United States? Um, sure. I think that, like, I'm a data-driven person, so I try to look at data and studies and how people analyze these questions. And I think that from, you know, the body of literature, it seems that our systems in America are set up in a way that um, people of color, um, specifically, I think black people um, are not given the same opportunities and denied from a lot of the same, um, not given equal treatment in a lot of ways, even though maybe specifically not legally, um, I think functionally these effects work out the way that they do. Um, so, and I don't want to be like, um, I know that, you know, you are black, so I don't want to be um, rude or anything or assume anything. So, stop me again if, if anything is um, disrespectful here. So um, obviously you have a lived experience that I don't. So um, that's one thing, but I guess just to continue on. Um, so in almost nearly, in almost every level of society, I think we can substantively prove that there is a difference in outcomes and a difference in treatment for black and white Americans. Um, and I think this also is with other racial groups as well. Um, but I try to follow the data and what the data shows me. And that seems to be what the truth is. See, that's so, we, we, we kind of crashed into this data problem uh, last time because I definitely deal in data. Um, it, it's important, um, but the I think the issue here is this, this issue of um, a guaranteed equality of outcome uh, pitted against the level of effort. Um, you know, I can say growing up as a black kid or black teen the social pressure from the black community was to be dumb, um, was to be talented in sports and not talented in school. And it wasn't actually my white friends pushing that. My white friends didn't care if I read a book or if I studied, uh, but my black friends would very obviously 
uh, kind of hint that, hey, this is not cool. Um, so I, it's interesting. I agree. The data, the outcome, there, there are noticeable differences in outcome, but there are also noticeable differences in effort. Um, and it seems that it seems like things have gotten a little crazy. I think for um, national museums to hold this view and for all of the big institutions to, to be saying that things like being on time, um, working hard, reading, reading to your children um, are systemically racist, are meant to keep black people down. I think if we take that truth, uh, so my, my family's biracial, my wife is white. So I think if we ask the question, which family is better off? Which child is going to be better off? The child who gets read to and gets taught how to read and told that reading is important, or the child who doesn't get read to and is not encouraged to read. Um, I think that's actually to the detriment. That's kind of driving you towards that bad outcome. Um, and I, I just, I don't think it's intellectually honest of, um, I won't say Democrats, I'll say far left to say things like being on time is racist. I think it's kind of strange. And if you hold that view, I think if you're like, I'm intentionally going to be late, um, be, you know, uh, what, what are the other things? I'm not going to read the requirements. I'm not going to read the emails or whatever. And I don't know, pick something else out of the hat. I don't think that you should expect to have the same outcome if that's your attitude. Um, yeah, I guess like to back up a little bit, um, the examples you give, I probably wouldn't agree with. I mean, I would need to see more context, but I think there are crazy people on the extremes that will say things that, you know, are not necessarily rooted in reality. I don't think though that that would deny the truth that um, there is unequal treatment um, of races in America. And I don't think it's controversial for institutions to accept that. So for example, like um, with the police, so they've done studies of you know, millions of traffic stops and they found that um, during the day, um, black people are stopped significantly more as a rate after controlling for things like um, criminality or criminal record or illegal activity or all of the possible confounding variables. Um, and then when it becomes nighttime, those that disappearance goes away because it's harder for officers to see inside the car. So like, this is just one example, but I think like the, like ultimately like there is a, there is a real effect of things like segregation, things like redlining policies that were passed not too long ago. I mean, there are people alive today that were the first kids to go to uh, non-segregated schools. So I think that like there are effects that have come from uh, a long history of mistreatment and those effects are now manifesting themselves. And to your point about culture, I think that culture doesn't like grow in a vacuum. I don't think that black America genetically is predisposed to have a bad culture or like chose one day, you know, we're going to all grow up and, you know, make bad decisions. I think these are products of your environment, products of things that have happened to you and your ancestors and your family. Um, and I think that like to fix or to change, the, I'm not going to say fix because I, I don't think culture is bad or anything. There are probably bad aspects, but I think to like move the culture in a way that we want it to go or, or to help black people achieve uh, more. I think that we have to look at how um, that unequal treatment continues today. And we have to somehow rectify um, the unequal position that uh, black Americans face as a result of nothing that they've done in their life, but what, you know, s systems they are born into and, and where they're born. So that's kind of my long winded answer. I don't think that like, for example, I think that there are some alarmists on the left that will make, you know, kind of weird arguments about how, you know, I, I remember I read an article this summer about how looting was 
okay or something. I don't think that's like, I don't think these are like real positions that people hold. They're a fringe of a fringe. But I think that like the, the problem of systemic racism, um, I don't know how you could deny that it, it exists because it seems to, in studies after study after study, um, manifest itself in different ways in, you know, education, policing and housing, et cetera. So yeah, that's just my position. So I, I think that we're talking in a broad range. So I'm, I'm going to kind of uh, what I say, Larry Elder, this and get like super specific. What do you think the, the greatest challenge facing black Americans is if there's one thing holding down, holding back the greatest amount of black Americans, what would that be? I think it seems to be the wealth distribution. Um, black Americans, uh, as a share of wealth, own far less than white Americans and Asian Americans and you know people of other races that haven't had the same kind of historical um, setback. So I think that like this manifests itself in a lot of different ways too. So like in schooling, um, black you know schools that black kids go to are often significantly worse than their white counterparts because they're in worse areas of the city and get less property taxes. Um, it's harder for them to find loans because they are you know born into you know, less wealth. It's significantly harder for them to get a job due to both like, institutional factors and also implicit bias. So remember, there was that study that said that like black names on an application, everything else held identical, would not get the same response as a white name. So I think like all these feed into the problem of black people not being able to access the same wealth as white people and um, that kind of feeding into the rest of the racist outcomes we see in our society. Um, yeah. So we, we split into a couple of different issues there. So I'll, I'll drop a factor figure about each point um, and let's latch on to one and um, go down that road. Cause, cause if we're going to say that there's a single issue, um, so wealth shouldn't be um, equally distributed. I, I think the terms wealth distribution is, is uh, not quite correct. Like, um, you know, for, for the notion that wealth should be distributed equally, then effort and um, talent and know-how and all of those things don't come into play. So if someone worked 20 hours and someone else worked 40 hours, if we're just distributing the wealth versus earning the wealth, um, then the person who worked twice as much should maybe have twice as much. Um, the, the, the wealth that you're brought into or the wealth that you're born into um, has been statistically uh, proven to not matter at all. Um, tons of research from Dave Ramsey support that, you know, people think all kinds of things about the rich, the millionaires and whatnot, or the 1%, um, which is not a group of people. It's constantly changing. You know, Ben Shapiro is in the 1%, and he's out of the 1%, and he probably won't be in it again. Um, but here in the United States, there are 18.6 million millionaires. Um, less than around uh, less than a quarter of them received any inheritance at all. They're not from wealthy families. Um, and literally about 12, 14% of them received from an outside source an amount of a hundred thousand dollars or more. Um, so basically um, let's round up to 15. So we'll say, um, we'll say 85% of millionaires in the United States today, which is 40% of millionaires globally, are self-made. They didn't inherit a dime. Um, and and they're first, a lot of them are first generation um, Americans. So we've, we've seen that in the West 
Indies studies, um, for all intents and purposes, when you look at them, a West Indian looks black. Um, and there are huge differences in the success and education and wealth that they hold versus born in black Americans or born here, black Americans. We see the same thing with actual African Americans who are from Africa, uh, not the white ones, but the, the black ones who move here from Africa. Um, and they're doing exceedingly well pitted against black Americans. Um, so the wealth distribution, I feel like doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, you talked about uh, something about housing. Um, the, the problem that I have there is like, yeah, redlining was redlining was racist. Yeah, it was totally bad. It was, um, it was segregationist. It was absurd. It was ridiculous. But now, you know, my parents didn't deal with that, but probably the, just the generation before them did. Um, and you're right, those people are still alive today. But as a, uh, as a black American man who was born in the late 80s, um, that has a net zero effect on my life. I have to choose to let it um, impact my life. I live in one of the most affluent areas in Northern Virginia. Um, you know, my parents didn't pay for my school. I decided that I wanted to take on a job to pay for my school. There's no institution or rule or something that can stop a black person that says, I'm going to be successful. So I know that's a lot, but if we could, if we can chase down one of those rabbits, whichever one you, you'd like to dig um, at. Uh, we can focus on wealth distribution. So I think to respond to your point, um, I don't think it's true that um, anybody from any class can make it anywhere. Um, we have like this concept of stickiness at the end. So poor people tend to stay poor, rich people tend to stay rich um, as a proportion of uh, their group. So if it was true that anybody can make it anywhere, we'd see equal distributions of people moving from every class to another. We don't see that at that's, all. That's not true. That, that, assumes, um, that assumes that people want to do equal amounts of work and effort. But why would poor people want to do less work than rich people, all things held equal? That's an, a very interesting philosophical dilemma um, where where we're asking a why of something that doesn't make sense. Um, I mean, I think that like, unless there, there are two ways that this could happen, right? One is um, poor people are somehow genetically inferior and therefore can't make decisions that rich people can make. Or there's some social thing that's making them not do the same thing as rich people are. Either way, you're kind of accepting a kind of unfortunate conclusion that we probably want to work to fix, right? So I don't know what other thing there could be there. I think in the vast majority of cases that comes down to personal decisions, um, you know, the difference between someone that has a positive net worth and negative net worth is their individual decisions, not necessarily their intellect or um, how hard they work. It's, it's, it comes down to your discipline, the decisions that you make. Um, that doesn't seem to track with the data, right? Because then you're saying that if every, everything is equal and everyone can make the same decisions to do well, then why would poor people as a proportion be doing less, be making less good decisions than rich people? Like, because so people don't want to work hard. It's, I guess that's hard. why it's called hard work. It's hard to work or people don't want to like what you're studying. I don't want to study that. It's too hard. Sure. But being born, the only thing that's different between these groups is where they were born, like what family they were born to. Right. So it doesn't make sense statistically that in one group, a higher percentage of people would choose not to do the hard thing just because they're born. If, if well, it was that's, true that Anyway. That's not true. Uh, the studies are clear about that. If you, if you 
graduate high school to include getting a GD. If you get a job and work and earn and save, if you don't have children out of wedlock or before you're 20 and you get married before you have children, um, then in virtually every scenario, statistically, you will do well. If you're whatever class you're in, you are almost guaranteed. I think it's 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 mid 90s percent guaranteed uh, to move into the next one. So if you're low, you'll move to middle. If you're middle, you move to uh, upper middle, et cetera, right. et cetera. I think I agree with all this, but the point is that, that I would make is that it's much harder for somebody born poor who may have to work, drop out of school and work early on, or who may have, you know, be born into a really poor area and get introduced to drugs early on. Like it becomes exponentially harder as a poor person to make those right decisions than a rich person. And I think if the contention is correct, going back to the earlier point that anybody can make it anywhere at equal, like it's equally easy to make it anywhere as any person born to any part of society then we wouldn't see sickness at the ends. We would like the data would be equal. People would be moving classes equally based on only their talent or their choices or whatever. So it doesn't seem to be the case that that's, that's true. That's you said something, I forget what it was, um, but I'm like, yes, I, I agree with that completely. Um, but it, Oh yes, that's what it was. Yeah. It, it's absolutely harder for people born into unfortunate circumstance and there is no racial division there there um you know there are more white people on welfare than black people so there are actually more white people in dire straits than is that a relative number or absolute number uh percentage of population okay what is the relative say again what are the percentages uh do you know Oh, man, I don't know off the top of my head, um, but it's something, oh, well, I guess I know the fractions, so I guess I know the percentages. I think I think almost three-fourths of welfare is, uh, welfare programs are for the, the participants, the people on the programs are white, um, and slightly less than a quarter black, and then yeah, it stinks that it's this way in the U.S., but we lump everyone else into that little that little tiny whatever's left. Um, so given that, I, I guess it's, it's around 70, 75%. Um, but even given that, the idea that equal is fair, and I was just talking to someone about this book, um, equal in all circumstances as fair is, isn't, you know, uh, true. Um, the idea that if I had $10, then some random other person should have ten dollars that's um one it's, it's an is ought problem kind of thing um but also it it kind of it buds up against my like individual liberty individual property and type stuff um obviously i have a house that's bigger than someone else's house i have a house that's smaller than someone else's house because i live in this house the person in the smaller house has no claim to any of this property or whatever. And I don't have any claim to any of the person with the bigger house down the street. Um, but just to say that we should have equal houses, I don't think there's a basis for why that should be. Right. I, I mean, I agree with that on an individual level, but let's say you have 100 people and a hundred other people. And the only thing that's different between them is their race and 80 of the one group has nice houses and the other 20 are homeless. And in the other group, 80 are homeless and the 20 have nice houses. So across populations, individual choices kind of narrow out or like 
uh, wash out, right? Like you wouldn't assume that one group is making worse choices for no reason, or they just chose to make those choices. Usually there is like a system. Why? That, that last thing you said, the thing just before the last thing you said is like an essential why, um, that we wouldn't assume that one group makes worse decisions. I assume when I look at the prison population versus the population of people not in prison, I assume, and rightfully so, that population made worse choices then. Sure, but the prison population, like this is a post hoc kind of rationalization. They were there because they did something wrong. And then you can look at that population and say, yeah, they made a bad choice. But I don't think like being black is a um, like later circumstance of you doing something wrong, right? Like being yeah, black is. Yeah, but there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing inherently. Um, obvious about being black, about someone's blackness being a detriment to them being able to make good choices and and uh, work or read or. I mean, it's we've already. I mean, you kind of agree that it's much much harder for poor people, and if a higher proportion of the poor people in America are black, which I think is true, um, black people are as a group um, more in poverty than white people. But we can fact check that later. Um, but. If that's true, then it is harder as a black person to make it as a white than a white person, right? So we want to do something in society so that we can at least say for different racial groups, it's equally easy or equally hard to do well. You wouldn't want a disparity like that for no reason. Right? There's there's a logic leap there, though. So given in this moment right now, if there are more poor black people, um, which I'm trying to find numbers here because I know that there are actually more poor white people um, than uh, the only time that you can find that there are more poor blacks than whites is if you, if you include some critical like niche in your study. Um, but I know for a fact that more white people receive welfare, which to qualify for that, they would have to be less well off. Um, but there's, even if all black people are poor, um, there's nothing to stop an individual black person from becoming wealthy or from doing something themselves. You're, um, it, it sounds like you're making like a, like a predestination um, type argument where, you know, almost like neither one of my parents went to college. So because of that fact, and actually because no one on my side of the family went to college because of that, I couldn't go. I mean, that's not, what I'm saying necessarily, what I'm kind of saying is if you take a hundred people that are all born more poor than a hundred other people, statistically more of those hundred people, the first group, like less of them will do well than the other group. Right. This is just like, yeah. And it's, it's because started. of the actions of um, it's because of the actions of their parents. They, they have uh, different things. So one it's unfortunate, but one of those poor people has to decide to not do what their parents did. And, right. I mean, that's true, but we wouldn't expect people to like have this divine free will where they break away from everything they've been told. Like people act in predictable ways when you give them predictable scenarios, right? And it, it, I mean, if your uh, proposition, if your proposition is that like um, black people as a group can all do well if they choose to do well, um, then why haven't they done it, right? Like, shouldn't everybody want to do well? Like, there sh- there has to be some variable in society that is either perpetuating or I think, I think there is, and I think you just spoke it. It's um, what people are told certainly has an impact on, on their actions and on their behavior in, in our country. Are black people told that they're talented and smart and that they can do well? Or are they told 
that no matter how hard you work, you will never amount to anything. I, I think the answer, um, I think what's pervasive in our society now is, which is evidenced by uh, college admissions uh, policies or um, not Title IX, what is that thing called? Um, affirmative action um, is it's apparent, but it's also been said by a lot of leaders on the left that white people uh, without program X, Y, or Z can't uh, obtain, you know, whatever it is that rich white people have, um, which is total nonsense because there are so many. President Obama is, last I looked, worth $70 million. I mean, I agree that individual black people can probably do that, but as a group, Black people face certain circumstances that white people don't face in the same proportion and some that are unique to black people. So like there's a lot of literature that says, for example, with equal resumes, black names don't get called back as much as white names. So like there are factors in society, whether economic or otherwise, that make it harder for a group as a group, black people to succeed as white people. And that's what people want to equalize on the left. Um, and I think that that's like a pretty reasonable, like, this is borne out in the data over and over again, that like black people achieve not because of you know, culture or choice necessarily, but there are things that even if every black person does everything correct, they're still at a disadvantage in a lot of ways. Um, and that's not even getting into the fact that like, I don't think the primary reason why any group is doing worse in America is because they're told that they're like facing oppression when that oppression seems to be borne out in the data. It seems more likely that less than two generations ago, black people were literally, you know, segregated and, and treated as second-class citizens. And those th effects don't go away overnight, right? Like if my parents are, poor or if my grandparents are poor it's statistically much 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 more likely that i will be poor too um so i think that like i don't think that it's fair to say that all of them if they just made better choices could do well it just doesn't seem to be the case because we don't expect anyone else in society to act that way um so i think it's a not a very um it doesn't I follow think, i think it does seem to be the case and i think the evidence of that is successful black people um you know jamie fox said after he lost the oscar that he was nominated for. And he said, it's not because I'm black, it's because I need to act better. And he acted better and he got one. I, I think the wild success that wealthy black Americans, not Africans coming over here, but the extreme success that we've had, um, you know, we, we have a good percentage of those 18 million millionaires, I, I think is, is evidence to the counter or to the contrary that we can't I, well expectation you you said that they shouldn't be expected to i i never really thought about i've never heard it put that way um i don't know how i feel that that's kind of like against natural laws like um you know like a, a gazelle's got to learn how to walk and run if they don't they get eaten um it's kind of like saying well they shouldn't be expected to learn how to run um, unless I'm going off the rails with my logic. And I like talking with you because you notice these things as well. Um, but again, I, I don't feel like there's anything. You said a lot of facts. There are observable facts between groups of black Americans and white Americans. Um, and, and segregation was a thing, and that, that's a fact. Uh, but I don't think that there's any institution or a system that is in uh, that's active today that stops any black person anywhere from achieving whatever it is that they're trying to achieve. Um, so I, I guess to back up a little bit, 
Um, I think my fundamental argument is just that groups and people act in predictable ways when you give them predictable circumstances. Um, I don't think that it's fair to say that every black person should have to work significantly harder than um, the kind of neutral, like black people as a group should have to work harder than white people to get to the same like level of achievement. I don't think they should start in unequal places. I think that's fundamentally... But that's, but that's the 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 truth of the matter is everyone starts in unequal places. Um, my son is six. Uh, he might want to be a basketball player. We don't know how tall he's going to be. Um, it, it goes back to the equality thing. Uh, equal is not is unfair. If equality were fair, then there'd be uniform height, and we'd stretch those out that were shorter, and we'd cut down people that were taller. Uh, but the fact is, we, in the natural law, is we are born into different situations, we're dealt different hands. Um, so I, it sounds to me like the the trouble is accepting the truth that. Um, we are born into different situations and that means that we have to make different decisions or put different levels of effort. Um, you know, if I wanted to be a mathematician, the way that I screw up numbers and stuff, I would have to work harder, uh, not because I'm black, because of my, my unique circumstance. On an individual level, that might be true, but we don't treat groups of people or systems like this. So for example, like but we would why? never... How do, how do we make the leap from counting individuals to only counting people as, as groups? Because individual variations are supposed to flatten out as you get to a statistically critically large mass. Like, this is just math, right? Like, you would never say that, like, um, some group of people is doing worse than another group of people, and that's fine. Um, there must be something influencing that, that, you know, that disparity. And we look at what that disparity is, and I would argue that as policymakers, we want to address the disparity and fix it. Because, again, like, if you, you don't choose who you're born to, if you're born into one group, you shouldn't be facing a unequal pressure just because you're a member of a group um, that is unequally bearing the burden of some problem in society, right? Like, um, and I think to, uh, to keep it to that, I think like there is a very clear line that you can draw between Black Americans being denied wealth and back in redlining or segregation or whatever, and then that wealth never being built up. And unless you think that Black Americans are either um, spontaneously decided one day that we're going to make sure that we never gain that wealth back or they're genetically inferior or something, there should be no other explanation other than like a culture or society or some other reason. Um, that keeps them- Well, yeah, it, it is the culture. So I don't know if you listen to rap music or if you're like into the pop culture of black people, but I think it's absurd for someone to make the argument that um, black America, pop culture, black America pushes that, investing is sexy and good and cool or that saving money um when we look at the fact that a trillion dollars passes through black hands on beauty and hair products which is ridiculous um that's an evidence of black people making decisions all their own uh, with no i don't think there are any social pressures i think the social i know the social pressures from the black community are counter to the success of blacks in America. Do you have time to answer the last question, which is about like a book recommendation? Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I can stand up for like five more minutes. Cool. So apart from religious books, um, prescriptive religious books, you know, Bible, Quran, something like that. If you could get everyone to read and understand one book, what would it be and why? Hmm, this is a good question. Um, let's see. I think Why Nations Fail is a good book. 
Um, a book that I read recently was One Billion Americans by Matt Iglesias, which is good. Um, and then, like, I guess one more book, um, something in the realm of, like, political philosophy related to, uh, like, written by, like, John Rawls or um, Hobbes or something, like, something in the philosophy, political philosophy realm. But, yeah, those are some recommendations of mine. Cool. If, if you could pick one, what, what do you think that how, – how do you think everyone could benefit from reading one of those? Um, which two of them I know are great books. I haven't read um, – what was the last one you said? Something by Rawls. Oh, I don't know what the I don't know what his book is called. I just read like assorted readings from him. Um, but yeah, whatever like works that he writes. And um, sorry, so to answer the previous question, I think like um, Why Nations Fail is a good book that everyone should read once in their life. Yeah, and what would you hope that people could could get out of it? Like, ah, this helps society, nations. This helps global society. Yeah, I think forward. just. Um, helping people understand the macro level of what's going on in their society and in their, you know, um, in their country. Um, for an America-centric view, I think it, under- it, it, it underlines how, um, like, poverty and power and all these complex social factors work together and how um, government policy can influence um, not only what groups of people can uh, like can help groups of people, but also can, um, can influence behavior and model society and all that. Very cool. Well, Nick, thanks for being on the show. Always a pleasure. We definitely dove in and went. We chased that rabbit as far as it would go. But always a pleasure. And hope to have you on the show again sometime. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Joe Mobley Show. Remember to subscribe and make sure you don't miss out on future content. You can always show your support by leaving a review or making a financial contribution by going to thejoemobleyshow.com and hitting support the show. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If that was the first prayer you've ever prayed, I hope it won't be the last. Until next time, this is The Joe Mobley Show.